Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a teaching series called People of Hope, a study in 1 Thessalonians. In this series, we will see that even in trials, the way of Jesus offers us encouragement and hope. Thanks for joining us today. Have you ever had to say a really hard goodbye? We dropped our daughter off 2,000 miles away in August as she started her college career, and you better believe that was a hard goodbye. There were a lot of tears. There were a lot of hugs. Thankfully, we knew that she would be able to come home and visit us soon. But as today, we come to the end of our study in 1 Thessalonians called People of Hope, it's time for Paul to say goodbye, and he doesn't know if he's going to be able to see these people again. If you haven't been with us, we've been studying this letter this fall at 1 Thessalonians. And if you're following on your notes, what we've been learning together is that even in trials, Jesus offers us encouragement and hope. If 1 Thessalonians has been about one thing, it's been a letter of hope, hope that even in the midst of trials and persecution, which the Thessalonians were facing, that we can look forward to the day when Jesus returns and we can live faithfully today, trusting that that day is coming. So we are people of hope. In many ways, one of the cool things about this letter we've seen is that the Thessalonians were really Paul's pride and joy. I mean, of course, he had planted other churches and he cared for those churches. But by the time he got to Thessalonica, we just see These believers have a special place in his heart. It's one of the unique things about this letter. If you've read the New Testament before, we really get to see Paul's pastoral heart. Sometimes in other churches, we don't get to see that as much as we do here. But we've noticed in every single chapter, Paul says something special to them. Chapter one, I give thanks for you. Chapter two, I love you dearly. Chapter three, I'm concerned for you. Chapter four, I exhort you. Chapter five, I encourage you. He just loves these people. And after pouring out his heart to his readers, Paul is ready to say goodbye. And like I said, who knows if he's gonna get to see them in person again. And so in these last few verses of 1 Thessalonians, which we're gonna study together this morning, Paul, as both a personal friend, but also as a spiritual friend, father wants to say goodbye to them, and he leaves them with this question. If you're on your notes, how do we faithfully live as people of hope still today? How do we live as people of hope still today? So why don't you take your Bible, if you haven't already, and turn it one more time to 1 Thessalonians. We're looking at chapter 5, starting in verse 19, and we're going to finish this wonderful letter today. If you don't have a Bible, I encourage you to grab one in the seat underneath you there. I'd love for you to follow along in God's Word. You can find this on page 958. Now, before we answer that question, would you mind bowing your head and praying with me one more time? Lord, what a gift it has been to study this letter. What a gift the Word of God is. So as we study 1 Thessalonians one more time this fall, give us ears to hear and eyes to see what you would want to say to us. Help us personally, but also as a church, answer the question, what would it look like for us to faithfully live out as people of hope today in Springfield, Illinois? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, Paul starts by answering, answering this question right away with these incredible words in verse 19, kind of a short verse, but would you read it out loud with me there on your notes? It says, do not quench the spirit. The word quench, of course, was used to both extinguish fires, but also lights. And most commentators actually translate this verse this way, do not put out the spirit's fire. 
The Holy Spirit is a fire, and far from extinguishing the Spirit, we must let the Spirit burn within us, both as individuals, but also as a community together if we want to live faithfully as people of hope. And in the following verses, Paul's going to give us four ways that we can keep the fire of the Spirit burning in our lives. Or if you're following, Paul says, the way we live faithfully as people of hope today is by keeping the fire of the Holy Spirit burning until Jesus returns. If we want to live faithfully as God's people, we are waiting for the day when Jesus returns. And to do that, we keep the Holy Spirit burning in our lives. And so he goes through four ways. Let's dig in a little bit. The first way we keep the fire of the Spirit burning is by listening to and following God's word. Listening to and following God's word. Look at verses 20 to 22 with me if you have your Bible open. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. But test them all, hold on to what is good, reject every kind of evil. Now, there's a couple things going on here. We have to remember that this is a letter, right, written to an actual church before we had the Bible. We didn't know that this was going to be a part of the canon of Scripture yet. So here's what would happen. When churches like us would gather for worship back in Paul's day, they would do a number of things that we do. They would sing. They would give their offerings. They would read from the Old Testament. But one thing that they often did as well is people within the congregation would stand up and give what is called a prophetic word. You can read about this in 1 Corinthians 14. Now, when I use the word prophecy, please understand that in the Bible, it's talking way less about telling the future than it is as a word from God for the building up of the faith. In fact, the definition of prophecy in the sense Paul is using here is defined as the ability to receive and communicate direct revelations from God. They sometimes occur with future events, but most often are a word about the present situation. Does this make sense? It's more of a word of encouragement, of perhaps some conviction. And the question I want to ask you today is, does this still happen in the church? Do Paul's words still apply? Because now we do have the full counsel of Scripture. We do have the New Testament. Can people still speak words of prophecy over you? Gonna be honest, this has caused some controversy within the church with a capital C. So I'm just gonna spend a little bit of time talking about it and telling you what I believe. You know, people hate it when we don't tell them what we believe. So I'm gonna tell you what I believe about this. Number one, I believe, we believe as a church body of the supremacy and the sufficiency of the scripture here at Cherry Hills. We recognize a major difference, right, between Paul's time and our own time today. Namely, thank the Lord, we do have the completed canon of Scripture. We have the Bible in all of its fullness, the Word of God. This means today there are no more apostles like the apostles in that day, like the apostles of Jesus. There's no more Pauls. There's no more Peters. There's no more Johns. If there were, we would have to take their words and add them to Scripture, which John is pretty clear in the book of Revelation that we are not to do that. Now, an interesting side note here, apostles like Paul seem to have a clear sense, even in their letters, that they were speaking with a different kind of authority than the kind of prophecy he's referring to in these verses. In fact, if you have your Bible still, look down at verse 27. Paul writes, I charge you, before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. This is heavy stuff right here. 
He's basically telling the leaders of this church, I am putting you under oath to have this words of this letter written to this church, not only to this church, these letters often got passed to other churches as well along the way. Paul seems to have this understanding that his words carry a weight of authority that other prophets that would stand up in the church did not have. Peter even says this in 2 Peter 3.16. And it's for this reason, let's just be honest, friends, that for the last three months, we've gone through this letter line by line as a church, because we believe that this letter was more than just some mail from a first century guy named Paul. It is that, we can't forget that, but it is more than that. We also believe that this is scripture, that it was written by Paul to the Thessalonians, but at the same time, it was inspired by the Holy Spirit, by God himself. And even though it was written to the Thessalonians 2,000 years plus ago, at the same time, it was written for every follower of Jesus everywhere in the world, all throughout human history. And so as we read it and study it, we believe that though these are Paul's thoughts, for sure, they're also God's thoughts. We're reading Paul's commands, but we're also reading God's commands. We're reading Paul's words to the Thessalonians, but at the same time, we are reading God's word to you and to me. We read these words, we follow these words because we believe one of the ways we live faithfully as God's people of hope today, the way we keep the fire of the Holy Spirit burning in our lives is by believing and obeying the word that God has given us called scripture. I'm pausing for an amen. The word of God is an amazing gift he's given us to keep the fire burning. So it shouldn't be difficult for us to agree together that in the primary sense, there are no longer, quote, apostles and prophets like there were in this day. Paul says they form the foundation of, on which the church is built, and nobody has the right to tamper with it, to change it, to add from it, to subtract from it. It has been laid once and for all. And we can quench the Holy Spirit of God, both as individuals and as people, when we refuse to listen to and follow the commands God gives us in Scripture. Listen, Brian talked about this last week. I loved it. He said, we know 90% of God's will for us, right? Everybody wants to know God's will. We know 90% of it. We can find it right here in the Word of God. Even in this letter, we've seen Paul say things like, hey, avoid sexual immorality. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, and on and on and on. We are to hear God's word, James says, but make sure we also are doers of God's word. But all that being said, I personally still believe that there is the gift of prophecy. People have prophetic words to offer us in the church today. Perhaps you've experienced that at some time in your life. I went to seminary, Peggy and I got married, went to Princeton in order for me to go get my PhD and teach in a college somewhere. But I was forced to do these internships. One time I did one with some high school students. Another one I did it at a church where the senior pastor there really believed in building into the next generation. I had to do it for a whole year. And he's like, hey, you're gonna do everything. So I preached, I visited hospitals. I did everything that a pastor would do for over a year. And it was at the end of this time, the leaders of this church gathered me and said, listen, they were speaking prophetic words over my life. 
We believe that God has called you to be a pastor in a local church. Those were prophetic words. Peggy and I took them home. We prayed over them. We discerned what was said about our lives. And we felt like, yes, that was a prophetic word that God had given to us. Can that still happen today? I believe it can still happen today. And Paul's word to us here is to treat those kinds of words with discernment and wisdom. We don't reject them outright, neither do we accept them outright. We're to listen to them, we're to test them, we're to weigh carefully what is said. Now the question becomes, how do we do that? When someone claims to have a prophetic word and they speak it over our life, how do we discern whether this is a word truly from God? Well, Paul doesn't tell us here, but we know in other places in the Bible, in fact, if you're following, we're told to treat prophecies with proper discernment with five tests. Now you may be wondering, why are you spending so much time on this? This seems like a small thing, but I would just say to you, I don't think it's a small thing today. We have people everywhere constantly saying, I have heard from God, and we need to be wise as serpents, Jesus tells us, right? Are they really speaking on behalf of God? So let's walk through these five tests. The first test is the most important one. It must align with Scripture. Duh, right? God is never going to say something that would oppose what he's already said in the Bible. Like the Bereans in Acts chapter 17, we are to examine the scriptures carefully to see, is this prophet saying something that aligns with the Bible? The second test is what I just call the validity test. Does it actually come to pass? Look at what God says in Deuteronomy chapter 18, 21 and 22 about prophecy. You may say to yourselves, how can we know when a message has not been spoken from the Lord if what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true? That message, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. That prophet has spoken presumptuously, so don't be alarmed. There are a lot of so-called prophets out there today. This is what cults, this is what conspiracy theories are built on, people claiming to have a word from the Lord. And the test is, did that actually come to pass? I just read a couple weeks ago of someone who prophesied that John F. Kennedy was gonna be raised from the dead. People literally gathered there. It didn't happen, believe it or not. So what do you do with the person who prophesied that? You say, I'm sorry, you're not a prophet sent by God. The third task to ask is, does it teach a false version of the gospel? The gospel. It is our reason for hope. It's the good news that Jesus Christ bore our sin and we received the free gift of salvation, that Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man. And anyone who perverts that gospel is not a prophet from God. Paul's pretty strict about this. Look at what he writes to the Galatian church in Galatians chapter one. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. 
As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Some teachers had been coming into this church and saying, "Ah, I know what Paul said about the gospel, that it's the free gift of salvation. Actually, you gotta add some works to that if you really wanna be saved. Namely, you have to be circumcised. It's circumcision plus grace that equals salvation. And what does Paul say about that? May they be cursed for changing the gospel. If you've ever read through church history, you know the two things false teachers go after the most are Jesus' divinity and Jesus' humanity. And once that gets perverted, it is no longer the true gospel. I gotta move on. The fourth test is to ask, what is the character of the speaker? This one's straight from Jesus, right? He tells the church, hey, watch out for false prophets. Well, Jesus, how wouldn't we know, right? They're gonna be like wolves among sheep's clothing. And he says, by their fruit, you will recognize them. We know an apple tree because it bears apples. We will know a real prophet if they're bearing the right kind of fruit in their character, in their life. The fifth test is, does it edify the church in peace and unity? This is huge. Does it build up the church? Or does it attempt to split it and fracture it? According to Paul in 1 Corinthians 14, an authentic prophetic message will, quote, strengthen, encourage, and comfort the hearers. It will edify the church. It will bring conviction of sin and an awareness of God and be conducive to peace and order and above all, love. So friends, these five tests are true Even when we stand up here on stage on a Sunday morning teaching God's word, you must be wise and evaluate and make sure what we're saying from here is a true prophetic word from God. I mean, especially Brian, right? Let's just, I'm kidding, totally kidding. Never assume that I'm speaking direct words from God to you. Use these tests to discern, are these words good, Paul says. The Greek word for good he uses in these verses is kalos. It means what is genuine as opposed to what is counterfeit. It was used to the word to discern whether a coin was a genuine coin or a counterfeit coin. And here we come full circle, friends. Do you know how they train people today to spot counterfeit money? They don't show them any counterfeit money. They only show them the real thing. So listen, if we want to discern whether a prophetic word is truly from God, what should we study? The word of God. Full circle. We've been given everything we need to know how to listen and respond to God's word in our lives. And then Paul says, if you receive that kind of counsel from someone, then you hold on to it. You listen to it, you obey it, you take heed of it. If the counsel is harmful or false, reject it. I once heard of a girl, she told me that a guy came up to her at one time and said, God told me I'm going to marry you. And I said, feel free to reject that, (laughs) right? Feel free to reject that one. So the bottom line, though, God has given us his word to keep the fire of the Holy Spirit burning so we can live faithfully as people of hope today. And James says again, let's be careful, church. If we want that fire burning, not just to listen to what is said, but to do what is written. That is how we keep the fire burning. The second way we keep the fire of the Holy Spirit burning in our lives is by giving our whole selves to the sanctification process. 
Would you read verse 23 out loud with me on your notes there? It says, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This idea is something Paul talks about in this letter more than any other letter he's written. Sanctification. Remember what it means? It simply means in my life, there's going to be a process God wants to work in me to become more and more like Jesus, to see myself as set apart by God's grace And I want to become more and more like God. I want to become more holy. Paul's desire, he says here, is that is true in every area of our lives. Body, spirit, mind. We want to be ready for the day when Jesus returns. I'm going to go a little deeper on this one as well, because there's some really cool stuff Paul is doing here. He uses this adjective, whole. And in Greek language, the word whole could mean one of two things, and I think he's using both meanings here. The first one is how we would think of it to this day, right? It means good health, wholeness. For example, in Acts chapter 5, when the man who was born lame is healed by Peter and starts to walk, he's proclaimed to be whole. And here's the beautiful thing. I hope you believe this. If you're falling on your notes, God wants us to be whole. But here's the catch. Holiness is wholeness. Holiness is wholeness. So Jesus said, I've come to give you life and life to the full. How do we find that life? Through holiness, through sanctification, through the process of becoming more and more like Jesus. That is when we will be satisfied. That is when we will thrive. That is when we will look at life and say, it is good. Please understand, this is not simply about behavior modification. It means God wants every area of your life to be vibrant and thriving and flourishing. He wants you to experience shalom in the true sense of the word, this peace from your behavior to your thoughts, to your vocation, to your family, to your relationships, to your work, to your play. Holiness is wholeness. That is God's promise to you and to me. And I'm saying all this because I just don't want us as a church to buy into this Western myth that all God wants is my, quote, spiritual life. We tend to separate our lives into little slices of pie, right? Here's my spiritual life, my physical life, my home life, my work life. And Paul says, listen, it all belongs to him. That's why one of our core values at our church is we want to be whole life stewards because we believe what is written here in the word of God. God, I belong to, all of my life belongs to him. And all of my life is a work of sanctification. I want to talk specifically about the body for a second. We've seen in this letter that the body was often devalued in Greek thought and culture. Literally, they would say this about the body. The body is a tomb from which the soul would eventually be liberated. We're living in the same time today. The body has been devalued, but we've already seen in this letter for Jesus and for Paul, the body is a part of who we are as a wholeness. We're told if you're a follower of Jesus, you carry the temple of the Holy, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. It dwells, he dwells in your body. And so listen, even our physical bodies must be sanctified. Now listen, the second way the word whole was used during this time was to describe sacrifice. Do you know anything about Old Testament sacrifices? They were required to be what? Perfect, blameless, 
without fault. And check this out. This is so cool. Paul is using this idea of sacrifices to say, we too want to present ourselves when Jesus returns as holy and blameless and without blemish and fault before the King Jesus. We are to offer our bodies, our souls, our minds, our spirits as living sacrifices, perfect and whole and complete. That's impossible, you say. And I say, you are correct. But here's the remarkable thing Paul promises us in these verses. God is faithful, and he is the one who will carry out that work in our lives. This is definitely one of those both-and mysteries in the Bible, if you've ever tried to figure this one out, right? We are working towards our sanctification, and then we're told in verses like this, God is at work in our sanctification. Paul wrote it this way in Philippians chapter 2, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purposes. Which one is it? It's both. Let me say what I think this means on your notes here. God enables us to be holy by empowering us with the Spirit. In other words, as you learn to walk in the Spirit and sanctification, what's going to happen is he'll continue to do that. He will give you the power to keep growing and growing in your sanctification. If you quench the Spirit, it's going to stall the work that God wants to do in your life. He is at work in you. And as you give yourself to that work, he will be at work in you even more. The Holy Spirit calls us to be blameless. And by God's Spirit, we can become blameless. Again, that doesn't mean perfection and be ready for the day when Jesus returns. I'm gonna give you a quick example from real life. How many of you have children or have been a child at one point in your life? (laughs) Not all of you, that's incredible. That's pretty amazing. I want you to picture a one-year-old. Is a one-year-old fully mature? No, but a one-year-old can do some pretty incredible things, can't they? Through teaching them and reading them and talking to them, a one-year-old can begin to speak the most difficult language on earth, English. Now, they're not that great at it. Let's just be honest. I was thinking about it when our daughter was one. She loved Rice Krispies, but unfortunately, she would call them crappies. So we would have people over and she'd use sign language, more crappies, more crappies. And I would say, no, I don't need to change your diaper. (laughs) Can a one-year-old walk as well as we can walk as adults? No. But through trial and through error, for us being on the floor saying, come on, you can do it from picking them up again when they make those mistakes and fall. It's amazing that a one-year-old can begin to learn to walk. They're growing, they're learning, even though it's at incremental but significant ways. And my point is, we may start as one-year-olds in our sanctification process, but in God's faithfulness, he is patient. And he empowers us to take that next step and that next step and that next step. And that's why this is a process that God wants to help us with. But here's the key point I want to leave you with today. I don't just want some of the best for my two children. Do you? You want all the best for them. 
You want all the best for your kids. And the same is true when it comes to sanctification. Some of us have become satisfied with just some sanctification. But God says, no, 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 I want all your best. I want your body. I want your mind. I want your soul. I want your spirit. We're all being called to this. If you're a follower of Jesus, he says, come, follow me in this process. And the sobering reality is that God will not be content as your father with just some holiness in your life. He'll celebrate every step that you make towards it, but he is gonna call you and me further and further into this process because he really believes and knows that holiness is wholeness. So let me just give you some examples. God is pleased when we learn how to handle finances in a way that honors him. That is a part of our sanctification process. But if at the same time I'm saying to him, you can't have this area of sexuality in my life, you better believe he's gonna say, oh, I want that too. I'm gonna help you grow into that. God is pleased when we learn how to serve others, the, the least of these, I mean, for sure that's one way we become more like Jesus in our lives. But if we're judgmental and we look at other people who aren't serving and think you're not as awesome as me, you better believe. God's gonna say, I, I want that part of your life too. I'm not gonna be satisfied. So let me ask you, where are you slipping? in what Dallas Willard calls the gospel of, quote, sin management, right? Sometimes we just think, if I just avoid these kinds of things, then God must be pleased. That's not what he's after. He wants your wholeness. And holiness is wholeness. But where have you put up a wall? Where are you saying you can have this slice of my pie, but not that slice of my pie? Are you not doing it because of fear, because of pain, because of popularity, because of half-heartedness? The truth is, most of us in this room already know the area where God is like, come on, take that first step. I'm gonna help you. I'm gonna empower you. You know that, and the idea is simply do it. Turn around, repent, trust that holiness is wholeness even in that area. But a lot of us just need to spend some more time thinking, God, where would you like to see me grow? I was praying about it this week. And I've noticed, friends, that my fuse has become a lot shorter this year, that I'm quicker to react than I am to respond. Does God want that part of my life? He absolutely does. And so I lay that out before him. Help me, Lord, to be faithful in this way. The beauty of all this, I just want to remind you, is that you're not left to carry that out on your own. It's not willpower. And perhaps the most incredible words of this whole letter, Paul writes this in verse 24. You can see it on the screen. In fact, could we just read this out loud together? Well, I'll read it. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. What a promise. Friends, even in the call to holiness, we are people of hope because our God does not give up on us. Even when we slip and fall, he's ready. He will catch us. He will set us back on our feet because he knows we're learning to walk. He is faithful to empower us in the process of becoming more like Jesus. Thanks be to God. I need to keep moving. The third way we keep the fire of the Holy Spirit burning is by doing life together with other followers of Jesus. If you want a summary of chapter five of 1 Thessalonians after verse 11, this is what it's all about. How do we do life together? How do you treat the leaders in the church? How do you treat one another? 
How do you worship together when you gather? Paul says this in verse 25 specifically, brothers and sisters, pray for us. Have you ever thought how amazing that is? Paul's asking this church to pray for him and the other people he's traveling with. If the apostle Paul, eyewitness of Jesus Christ, spiritually gifted beyond all measure, needed the Thessalonians' prayer, here's what I would say to you. How much more? Do our own pastors and teachers and elders and missionaries need our prayers? So I'll just say to you right here, brothers and sisters, family of Cherry Hills Church, pray for us. I know many of you already do, and we're eternally grateful for that. Second, in verse 26, notice what he says about how they should relate to one another when they're gathered. Greet all God's people with a holy kiss. I remember as a single guy back in college saying, I love the Bible. Now, the truth is, we don't live in the Middle East anymore, right, where this kind of greeting is common among friends and family members, right? A kiss on the cheek. But the idea behind this command still stands. If Paul is writing a letter to us today, he might say, hey, brothers and sisters, greet one another with a holy hug. You know, the Christian side hug that we're really good at. Greet one another with a holy handshake or a holy fist bump. And so to my friend who complains about the greeting time, you know who you are. It's right here in scripture. Sorry, we're gonna continue it. Finally, and most importantly, we keep the fire of the spirit burning by the grace of God. Look at how Paul ends this letter. Verse 28. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Paul started this letter with these words in chapter 1-1, grace to you and peace. Now he ends it with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Now, it's tempting for us to think of that as simply kind of a dismissive sign-off, right? Like, sincerely, the Apostle Paul. Paul graces everything. Everything. This isn't some conventional formula. Listen, grace is the heart of the gospel. Grace is the heart of God. Grace is why, still today, we can be people of Hope, another great time for an amen. Do you know that grace? Friends, as we wrap up this wonderful letter, I'm gonna leave you once again with a reminder of the four resources we have to live faithfully as God's people, to keep the fire of the Holy Spirit burning in our lives and in our church. First, remember that we have in God's word all the truth that we need. Scripture builds up our faith, focuses our hope, empowers our love, so read it. Study it, and most importantly, live it. Second, remember that we have in the God's Holy Spirit all the power we need to become more and more like Jesus as we ready ourselves for his return. So give yourselves fully to him. Do not quench the spirit, but join him in the process of becoming more like Jesus. Third, This is important for our first world, Western world, individualistic society. We have the family of God. We have each other to help us overcome everything, every challenge that we might face. So we do not give up meeting together. We press on toward the prize, as Paul said, for which God has called us heavenward in Christ Jesus. And finally, remember, we have in God's grace everything we need, period. Apart from God's grace, we have nothing. 
But with the grace of God, we can be people of hope both in this life and in the life to come. Remember on the cross, Jesus said, in grace, I have done it. It is finished. But even in our lives today, he says, in grace, I will do it. I will do it. So as we close this letter, here's what I'd like us to do. Will you join me? I know you put your notes away. Shame on you. Will you join me in reading the last verse of 1 Thessalonians out loud? And here's what I want you to think about. I'm going to say this to the other people gathered in this room right now. I'm going to say this to the other people watching online right now. This isn't just a word for me individually. It's a word for us as the body of Christ. Paul wrote this to a church. We receive this as a church, and we speak these words of hope over one another. Let's stand. You don't want to use your notes. You can cheat and use the screen. If you want to look around at other people without being awkward, go ahead and do that. But let's say these words to one another as we end this letter. You ready? The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Let's do it again. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. One more. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information about our church or to get connected, please visit cherryhillsfamily.org or find us on Facebook. Thanks for joining us.